You're listening to Vernacular Podcast. Welcome back to Vernacular. I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. And today on episode three of Vernacular Podcast, we will be talking to Julia, who is a state or a chief of staff for a state senator. <laughs> Maybe someday a state senator, but Maybe someday a state not senator. right now. <laughs> uh, so she's a chief of staff for a state senator in Colorado, and we will be talking to her about a whole bunch of different things. Yeah. First, food news. Um, there's some major manufacturers and restaurants who've come out with changes in their in their recipes their ingredient um, policies yeah and so we'll be talking about that with her and um then we'll move on to our lifestyle segment where we'll talk about dating apps so you've heard of all these right tinder plenty of fish coffee meets bagel Co- yeah. coffee meets bagel so mm-hmm. yeah happen happen and uh, we're going to talk about them and uh see if we can kind of break it down a little bit more and see if those apps are doing what they're intended to do and whether or not that's a good thing and then we'll start the interview section. So we'll talk to Julie about her life and how she got where she is and what she's doing and where she's going. So stick around for that. That's all coming up. All right. Welcome back. Before we sit down with Julia, you know what time it is. It is time for your tip of the week. Hashtag tip of the week. And we actually have two or really three tips for you this week. Yeah. The first two are very... Uh, very similar though, or very closely related. The first, we're sitting here in the studio on Mother's Day, so we want to remind you by the time you listen to this, Mother's Day will be elapsed by at least four days. So call your mother if you have not already. Yeah, and if you haven't, then maybe you should do something a little extra special to make up for that. (laughs) Yeah, buy her some flowers, take her to dinner, make her feel appreciated. Okay, so the second tip of the week is more of a uh, more you know type of feature. Historically, Uh, Maybe you don't know this, but Mother's Day has not always been a holiday. So it started 111 years ago when Congress in 1914 decided to make it a national holiday. And they did so uh, at the request of Anna Jarvis, who was a young woman who was trying to recognize her own mother for her mother's extraordinary efforts on the battlefield when she was a nurse to Civil War soldiers. So the elder Mrs. Jarvis was quite an extraordinary person from the sound of it. And Anna Jarvis wanted to recognize that. So Congress acquiesced and said, yes, we should recognize mothers for all that they do. So in 1914, they recognized Mother's Day as a national holiday. Fast forward just six years. Six years is all it took for (laughs) Anna Jarvis to recognize what Mother's Day had turned into. And that's when she wrote, and I quote from Anna Jarvis, that charlatans, bandits, pirates, racketeers, kidnappers, and termites undermine with their greed one of the finest, noblest, and truest movements and celebrations. Oof, harsh words. So I think she's calling out companies like Hallmark, who just really use Mother's Day and Father's Day yeah, as marketing employees. Yeah, she would probably roll over in her grave if she was knew what it was, how bad it was today. Probably. I've seen some crazy stats that between 18 and $20 billion are spent on Mother's and Father's Day. Wow. It's insane. Wow. Anyway, that's your second tip of the week. And your third tip of the week 
is related to The Tonight Show by Jimmy Fallon. You've probably heard of that. If you haven't, then you need to find an episode somewhere and go listen to it. Um, but there is such a thing called The Tonight Dough, which is one of Ben & Jerry's newest flavors of ice cream. And I'm sitting here with a pint of it, um, which is remarkable because we've been searching for at least the past two, maybe the past three months for a pint of The Tonight Dough by Ben & Jerry's because we had seen the description of it and knew that we had to get it. Let me read it to you. Caramel and chocolate ice creams with chocolate cookie swirls and gobs of chocolate chip cookie dough and peanut butter cookie dough. So if you don't like peanut butter, this ice cream is not for you. And I just want to point out that was not a misreading when Sally said ice creams. We're not talking about combined a caramel and chocolate ice cream flavor. We're no. talking about caramel ice cream and chocolate, and chocolate ice, ice cream. cream. So caramel and chocolate ice creams with all the amazing extra and not stuff. Chocolate, and not chocolate chip peanut butter cookie dough, but chocolate chip cookie dough and peanut butter cookie it's dough. It's so good. I'm not exaggerating when I say this is the best ice cream I've ever had. Yeah, and I never exaggerate, and I will completely agree with that. It's the best ice cream I've ever had, too. So there it is, your third tip of the week from us yeah, this week. go get the Tonight Dough and eat it while watching the Tonight Show. It's the only way to go. <laughs> All right, stick around. All right, welcome back to Vernacular Podcast. We are here with Julia uh, in the studio. Uh, Julia, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. We're looking forward to talking to you today about all of our topics, and I know that these are topics, well, not all of them, but at least the first one is one that you're passionate about. I don't think you're passionate about dating apps, but I could be wrong. <laughs> I can become interested in anything if I study it long enough. So. <laughs> all right, good. Uh, well, we're excited to talk to you about um, all this this food stuff that we have lined up and then uh, dating apps and then hear a little bit more about your story. So thanks for joining us. Yeah. I thought we could talk about the food stuff first off. And these are stories that you're probably familiar with, but uh, I was just intrigued. Something caught my eye. I was uh, on CNN.com earlier today, and uh, I read an, a, a, new, a headline that said, M&M's candy maker, Mars Candy, says, don't eat too many. <laughs> <laughs> so... That caught my eye as a funny headline. I clicked the article, and actually, it was talking about how Mars is saying that it now supports uh, government recommendations to limit sugar intake uh, and label sweets with the amount of added sugar that they contain. And then, very interestingly, the article went down and listed some other things that, I, that I'm already familiar with that have happened in the news recently. So I know Nestle said about three months ago that it was going to eliminate all artificial colors and flavors from its chocolates. Kraft announced that it was going to take out artificial additives and colors from its macaroni and cheese. Chipotle um, was going to take out GMOs. Yep, Chipotle's taking out GMOs and Panera. Tyson Chicken. Oh yeah, Tyson is taking announced out Announced that they're going to try to take out antibiotics from oh, the chicken. Oh, antibiotics, right. Mm -hmm. uh, Panera announced that they are removing about 150 different artificial ingredients. Yeah, words from that you don't even know what they mean. <laughs> yeah, so I guess the first takeaway is. If Kraft is taking out artificial colors, does this mean that we'll finally get to see the actual color of their mac and cheese? Yeah. We'll find out it was like all along it was like this this sludgy brown color. <laughs> and they're just adding fake yellow to make it look appealing all this time. Uh, I guess they're confident enough about it. Otherwise, they're going to lose business. No, but all kidding aside, uh, hopefully it's still yellow. Oh, and just, Diet Pepsi is taking out um, aspartame. Right. And just using Splenda. Yeah, so they're replacing aspartame with Splenda. Uh, they're not the only soft drink to do that. Mm -hmm. um, I've also seen a lot of uh, soft drinks moving in the stevia direction as well, using that as a natural sweetener. 
So uh, I guess it's just catching my eye as an interesting trend. We're seeing a lot of these companies start to respond to consumer preferences and take out artificial additives from, from food. And I think that's, that's an interesting change. Yeah. Well, it, it is. And I think it shows a lot about, first of all, the power of the consumer to affect change which is, I think, a good part of our economy and how you know consumers can drive demand. But I think it's another good example of why we don't really need, or in my view, we don't need government control and legislation in this area. If this is something that can happen um, you know, without government mandates, I'm a huge fan of that, of course, but I think this is a good example for why we don't need it. Why we don't need the government regulation? Yeah, right, of all of these products. I mean, even putting necessarily regulating what the ingredients are in them or if, you know, what food products can contain. I mean, I think that people should have the choice to choose, you know, to eat M&Ms with Red Lake 40 or whatever is in the candy coating. But if people don't want that, you know, Nestle's going to respond. You know, this is an so. aside, but I've always wondered why they call these things Red Lake 40. <laughs> like, like, these companies just have a giant lake of red dye, that they, that they, like like the, the 40th red dye lake that they have. Like, oh, this was this is Red Lake 40. That's where this additive is coming from. That's probably closer to the truth than anybody really wants to know. <laughs> so, so I guess, I mean, I guess I'm new to this, these headlines uh, up until the past couple of weeks, but so all of these are in response to consumers just like writing in or saying that that's what they want. I mean, Oh, I'm, I feel sure that they are because why else would these companies change in this way? It's, yeah. I don't see any benefit to them. I mean, we've seen this in other areas too, when the whole organic trend started becoming a bigger thing, uh, due to consumer demand, that was one of the direct reasons why Walmart started carrying more organic products. Hmm. I mean, starting with milk and dairy and yogurt and kind of expanding out from there, but that was in direct response to consumer demand. So it's not the same thing, but I think it's, you know, a similar instance happening. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, and similarly, restaurants are carrying more gluten-free or dairy-free options for people as those are becoming more trendy diets. Yeah. yeah. Now, Julia, I, I know I saw in the news uh, two months ago in March, Wyoming passed a, a, a bipartisan food freedom bill. Mm-hmm. And I, I saw that also this was something that when you submitted your questionnaire to us for your interview, you mentioned that you were interested in. Can you explain the difference to me between the Food Freedom Act and a cottage food law? And the cottage food law in Wyoming? Uh, well, I know several states already have cottage food laws. So what's the difference between those two? So I don't actually know. Um, but if I had to guess, I would say the food freedom law is more comprehensive. Um, I would guess cottage food laws are just um, a little more restrictive in terms of what consumers can sell because what's going on in Wyoming is you're now allowed to purchase any product directly from the producer with the exception of beef, I think it is. You can still, I believe you can purchase chicken directly from a farmer but not beef. So I don't really understand how those lines were drawn, but anything else you can get directly from the farmer. So I in cottage food, I think would just not be as expansive. Okay. That makes sense. Got it. So with this passage of the food freedom bill in Wyoming, then you can just go out and buy raw milk from anybody who's selling raw milk? I believe raw milk is included in this. I would have to check. Um, but if it's if it's included underneath it, then yes, that's the same principle. You just walk up to the farmer and buy their milk. So what's the philosophical basis for a food freedom law? 
I think part of it has to do with people kind of getting back to this idea of wanting to know who your farmer is, um, finding someone who you can, you know, trust to produce your food. So I think some of it is you want to know your farmer and that comes out of this whole emphasis on local foods, how it's good to buy stuff from your local area, buy it from people that you trust. Um, and I would say there's, you know, on the political philosophy side of things, you know, there's no reason that the government needs to control our access to the food we choose to eat. Um, if I decide to trust a farmer, then that's, it's my choice, you know, to go up to him and buy from him. And there's no reason that the government should be sort of regulating that transaction. It seems to me that the, that the government's less interested in regulating the transaction and more interested in regulating the production of the food itself. I, I, I mean, I don't know that you can separate the two, though, because once you start regulating the production, then you, it gets regulated. In, in other states, it's regulated how it's sold, where you can sell it, um, what counts as a processed food versus an unprocessed food, and what you can sell on your farm versus what you could sell through a store. So even if they're not trying to regulate my purchasing of something, the fact that they're regulating how it's produced ends up affecting my ability to purchase it. Do you think, though, that there's a, a compelling or at least a substantial government interest in making sure that food is produced in a manner that's safe for consumers? I mean, it's, it seems like the, the reason for these regulations in the first place isn't just the government wanting to get in farmers' chili, but the government stepping in and saying, let's just make sure that this food is safe for consumers. And so make sure that when you're making your milk, for example, mm-hmm. the milk isn't filled with a bunch of contaminants that can get people sick. Sure. On the one hand, yes, you could absolutely say there's a compelling government interest for being involved. On the other hand, I would say it would take a perfect world in order for that to be effective. Uh, You know, for example, we everyone probably remembers the whole E. coli and the spinach outbreak in 2009. In theory, all of those farms, those plants, all of that process should have been government inspected, and yet that didn't stop you know, anything from happening. And then there was a recent um, contamination in peanut butter, I think, with salmonella. And all of this, in theory, is under government regulation, except that's not actually, or inspection, and yet it's not actually working, or not in all the cases. So the question, I think, is, are we actually safer with the government regulating? If that could prove to be perfectly... Um, you know, help make things perfectly safe, maybe, but I don't think it can. And that goes back back to why I think it's important to have this concept of knowing your farmer, right? Because then you're not purchasing meat from someone 2,000 miles away, and you have no idea how they raise their cows or chickens or how they grow their spinach. Yeah, it's someone you but, know, someone you trust. Right. And that's, I mean, I, I trust a person that I know and can I actually walk into their farm way more than someone in a warehouse that I've never met. So I think, is there a need for safety? Yes. Is government regulation the only way to achieve that? I don't think so. And I think part of the answer is consumers holding the farmers accountable, finding someone you trust to work with. And then you don't need the government telling you this place is safe. Yeah, I can definitely see the logic behind that. I guess my thought would be in our world today, do you, can you, do you have the opportunity to go and buy from your farmer down the road? I mean, what about people yeah. who live in, I guess, more urban areas or just where you, you don't have that opportunity as much? And I know that farmers markets are becoming more popular in cities. And so then you do have a chance to actually bring locally grown produce or 
meet or whatever mm-hmm. into into the space where you're living, but but maybe you don't have that opportunity, and then what do you do? So I think that's a great point, and you know, there's no perfect solution to all of this. I, I, obviously, I would say part of the answer is buy from someone you know as much as you can, and you sort of vote with your dollar every single time in that sense. Yeah, sure. So do you also support um, government initiatives to make sure that consumers are informed of the risks before they go out and buy raw milk? You know, that's that's a really hard question. Um, again, in an ideal world, I would say you should, you know, inform yourself. I don't want to say that we should look to the government to make sure we're aware of everything about everything. I think some of it is we have to be responsible with our own choices. Um, and, you know, honestly, this will get kind of into the political weeds here, but there's so much, specifically over the raw milk debate, I mean, there's a lot of conflicting evidence and a lot of conflicting interest even in the safety of raw milk. So who, who, who writes the brochures that say you need to be informed about it? The other side of this is, and maybe this is just me, but you know, people talk about how the sausage is made and nobody wants to see how the sausage is made. Right. I'm all about knowing my farmer and you know, it would be great if I could know the person who owns the cows who make the milk that I drink, but I don't, I don't necessarily want to be super close to that process. (laughs) So I'm, I'm kind of okay with just having this very nice looking, Carton, carton of milk in my refrigerator. It has a nice, friendly-looking cow that on I it. bought at the nice, clean grocery <laughs> yeah, <right>. store. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, there's something kind of comforting about that. And also, you mentioned the raw milk debate. I didn't even know that there was a raw milk debate. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So raw milk means that it's not pasteurized. That's right. It's not not pasteurized, not heated above a certain temperature. Gotcha. Huh. That and sounds... and the, the whole debate is over whether or not it should be legal and whether or not it's safe. Um, every every all fifty states can make their own laws. Is raw milk is raw milk legal to drink in your in your own state? Uh, where I live currently, you can access raw milk um, via cow shares or what it's called. So it's a very clever you know way to get around the laws where it's. So you share illegal. a cow. Basically, yes, I could go to a farmer that has these cow shares and I could buy a share of a cow um, and then I pay him a monthly fee to board my cow or my, you know, leg of the cow or however much of the cow I own. <laughs> but then because this is my cow, part of the fee I pay him includes him milking it for me and then I can go pick up my milk from my cow. Um, and it's raw milk be- and I can get it legally because it's my cow. So I'm allowed to drink the milk from my own cow. Wow. Now, yeah, Julia, are sense. you living a paleo lifestyle? <laughs> well, <laughs> I drink raw milk whenever I can get it. So some people would say no. Um, I also, you know, don't walk around barefoot or live in a cave. So I don't know <laughs> do how you, often Do you hunt I... your own meat? <laughs> when, I'm at ho- when I'm home in Mississippi at Christmas, I'll go hunting with my brother. So Now, know. do you use a spear? <laughs> <laughs> no. No, I think for I, it to be truly paleolithic, you need to use a spear. Yeah, so I guess I'm not. <laughs> My other question is, I've heard of ancestral eating. Is that a synonym for paleo? Um, there, According to the person, people, whoever you talk to? <laughs> yeah, right. According to pe- people on the interwebs tell me. No, um, a lot of the, the paleo movement focuses on this whole idea of we need to return, how, return back to how our ancestors ate. 
minimally processed, mimic our eating patterns after how it would have been for them as they migrated across the plains or they ate seasonally. Does that that strike you as just completely anathema to our evolutionary perspective of how we developed? Because why would we want to mimic the way our ancestors did things (laughs) thousands of years ago if we've evolved to the point where we are now? That doesn't make sense. We've now evolved and our brains have evolved to the point or we can design Red Lake Forty, and we can use that. <laughs> we can use that in our mac and cheese to make it look beautiful. And we've you know, and we've and we fashion these amazing preservatives that could just preserve our lives longer. So keep our food on the shelves for decades. <laughs> so Red Lake Forty is now the elixir of life, and we sort it, of you know it could be. Who, I'm, I'm not saying smart. it is. I'm not saying it isn't. It could be. I don't know. <laughs> I mean. You know, I think one of my favorite ethical statements to play with is, you know, just because we can doesn't mean we should. And I think that applies to a lot of things, including, you know, our, our the way we eat today. Um, so just because know, we can hunt our food with a spear doesn't, doesn't mean, mean we should. It, it maybe, also maybe we should just let the farming happen far away from us and we can drink the milk that way and and, but see then the problem is we have a whole generation of kids who go to the grocery store with their mom and dads and they think that milk comes out of a container you know (laughs) they think bacon comes out of a plastic package in the freezer and so i mean to be fair i don't think i ever thought that the, the bacon began and ended in the saran wrapped styrofoam tray at the store. You know, maybe, maybe I was an exceptionally bright child. I don't know. I mean, my concern right now is that our daughter thinks that me, I am a cow and the cow is similar to me because <laughs> <laughs> that's where the milk comes from for her. You know, you start with what she understands and go there. It's, okay. it's true-ish, you know, so she can figure out the ish part later. <laughs> maybe that was team. <laughs> Maybe that means we should move on. All right. On that note, we'll transition (laughs) to our next segment. Welcome back. All right. Well, now that we have talked all about food, we're going to, in this lifestyle segment, talk about dating, specifically dating apps. And some of them are very similar to each other. Um, You can just kind of hook up with someone who's in your your, your, uh, neighborhood or your city and meet them for coffee, or you can get their phone number and start texting with them. Um, another dating app that, um, I heard about recently is coffee meets bagel, where each day you get one bagel for the day (laughs) and you can decide whether or not that person is someone you want to connect with. And if you decide to connect with them and you decide to go on a date, then coffee meets bagel actually gives you a discount on, going out for a coffee or going out for a drink or something like that, which is very different than Tinder, it seems anyways, from my limited knowledge, where the goal doesn't appear to be actually meeting someone and going on a date with them, but more either flirting with them over text or actually just hooking up for sex. You know, Sally and I actually met on Tinder. (laughs) This is all just a big push for Tinder. That's how our relationship started. Her face popped up and I was like, I'm going to swipe that. I, is that swipe left that for how love swipe, i think swipe, 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 i swiped that left for love and <laughs> the rest is history yeah no that didn't happen but i don't doubt that it does which is why i don't want to poo-poo dating apps across the board yeah i just think we we should be you know more discerning and, and not not lump all these dating apps into the same category right. because i was reading about one called um called the down and uh the and it down used to be called it used to be called something uh more suggestive uh, but apparently the app is still the same. 
but the down exists to basically help you just hook up and they're very explicit about this intention. And so I guess once you find a, a quote unquote match, you have the option to try to meet them for a date or you can just skip the date and go right to getting down. The bedroom. Yeah. So to speak. So there are apps like that that exist as well. Um, and Tinder might not be that extreme, uh, might not be as extreme as the down, but most people, um, most people I know who use Tinder, um, see it a little bit more that way than as a basis for generating real relationships. Um, but at the same time, the CEO of Tinder, a guy named, I think his name is Sean Rad. He called it a social discovery tool. So he's insisting that it's actually not just for dating, but could just be a social discovery tool to hmm. meet meet friends and meet new people. I don't know if I buy it, but there's a study out of the United Kingdom that took about, I think, 680 people or so and, and tried to um, extrapolate data from that user base of Tinder to figure out what the larger demographic of Tinder looks like. And, and they said that about 30% of Tinder users are married, um, which could be one of two things, one and, and maybe both, but one that people on Tinder are um, trying to use Tinder as a means of cheating on their spouse um, and or uh, people are really using Tinder as a social discovery tool um, that's not for romantic purposes. So Yeah, and I guess that's really kind of the interesting thing about these apps. You have the creators who have a certain idea in mind when they create the app. Oh, this is for people to hook up and have sex or oh this is for people to meet a new friend or oh this is for someone to meet their life partner and then you have the people who are consuming these apps who are downloading them and using them and i don't know if they always use it with the right expectations in mind i'm not sure what their expectations are yeah i there's there's a lot going on there with the whole um you know internet dating or all of these apps that help you meet people. And on the one hand, it seems really natural because so much of our, you know, society does things on the internet now with Facebook and emailing and even texting and MySpace. You know, yeah, <laughs> some, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, everyone's familiar with the whole conversation now of what's what's a real friend versus a Facebook friend and what's it like to have friendships online versus friendships in real, but uh, you know, in real life. Yeah, and, and we've had actually, online dating for a while, the the kind of the community um, style of, of dating where you have a wide array of people. It's not an app, but it's more of just right. a website where you can yeah, get and, a profile. And, and like you were saying, Sally, you know, we're not poo-pooing that because we know several people who have met on um, like Match.com or eHarmony. Yeah. Really wonderful people who are now enjoying wonderful marriages and have wonderful families. So. You know, it's not a question of if this should be done, but it's just a question of how it should be done, I guess. Yeah. But I see what you're saying, Julia, where it's, it, it does seem like the logical next step in mm. our use of technology and relationship building. Well, and probably as with anything, it, it all depends, as we were saying, on how you use it. I mean, one of my biggest concerns with this whole world is you, you meet someone with no context whatsoever, you know, it used to be you met people through a friend of a friend or through church or through, you know, an organization you participated in together. And now you can be matched online with someone you've never met. And that whole concept has been pretty intimidating to me to think, you know, oh, I could I could meet someone that I'm just not connected to at all. But then on the other hand, I found out last week actually about another app called Hinge, another dating app called Hinge. And it can it uses your access as your Facebook um, contacts and connects you with people in your own social network. 
which I thought was kind of a good idea because then that takes away the factor of it being someone totally random. Yeah. At least it might be a friend of a friend or if it's not your actual Facebook friend. Right, right. And and that's fine. But it gives some kind of context for the relationship. Yeah. Otherwise, hey, this is a random person that some, you know, computer algorithm somewhere said would work well for you. And, you know, I think life is much more of an art than a science. And so... (laughs) Not sure how that, you know, how computers know how to match up people, but yeah. Now, do you know if Hinge is marketing itself as a, the sort of social discovery tool that we talked about, or is this exclusively for dating? I think it's exclusively for dating, as far as I know. Okay. Yeah, um, because I just get paired, I would just get paired with guys on this, and I can either heart them or cross them out. Okay. But oh, I see. That's, that's <laughs> Between like, yeah, I downloaded it to try it out because I was so curious. So I can either heart them or X them, which means they're gone into oblivion for forever. So now, does this uh... be there? <laughs> <laughs> it sounds similar to Coffee Meets Bagel because I think that's based off of your your Facebook context as well. Yeah. So when you're using Hinge and you have the opportunity to to X or heart somebody, what mm-hmm. information do you have available? Is it just a picture of them, or do you have a bio? What are you looking at? Yeah, so you can kind of create a mini bio for yourself, and then it also accesses your Facebook photos. So whatever you have on Facebook, as well as you can select some of your interests, your hobbies, your religious background, um, I think where you live. So it's a mini, it's, I mean, it's a very abbreviated bio, though. And it's, it's not like you can put up there that you like long walks on the beach and, you know, fondue or anything. It's not that detailed. <laughs> okay, got it. Yeah, because I wonder... for. For those kinds of apps, I can see more how how people would use them with the hope and that they would be created with the hope that people would actually build a relationship off of it. Mm-hmm. Whereas, and I don't know if this is the case with Tinder, but my impression is just that you look at the picture and it, you swipe based on solely the picture, which to me, I just wonder if people are really using it then to look for a relationship. Mm-hmm. And even the social discovery tool message, I, I'm kind of doubting... That. I'm super skeptical of the social yeah, discovery claim. Do you discover your new new friends just based on how they look? I mean, usually right. friends. Well, are that is why of... I'm friends with you, Sally. Oh, so. okay. Well, thank you. <laughs> That's why I'm friends with Sally too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I've been proved wrong. <laughs> well, I I understand what you're saying with that, and I'm immediately thinking. I'm sure you're familiar with the concept of these meetup groups that you can sign up for online. And those are very clearly about meeting people that have your similar interests to make friends. Uh, You don't even see pictures necessarily of them at all. Um, But I've signed up for a couple of meetup groups for hiking, for yard sales. All milk drinking. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, I feel more comfortable with that. I would because that's that's just very clearly, hey, I want to find people who like to do what I like to do. Yeah, and I guess as long as the aims of the creator and the aims of the users match up, then okay, that's fine. But I think it, I'm not sure, but I'm trying to put my finger on it. What bothers me more is when people will just come to these apps with maybe just false expectations of what they're going to find through their experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's one issue. And the flip side of that one is that people come to these apps um, many times, I think, not really willing to be entirely genuine or not 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 willing to put their um put their money where their mouth is i guess or not not willing to make a commitment yeah of any kind and so 
Uh, I'm Maybe thinking, not even willing to say what's true about themselves. Yeah, too. yeah, they're not willing to be authentic. And uh, the one thing I'm thinking of now is this New York Times article that I read from just about three days ago, I think it was. Uh, the New York Times, by the way, for our listeners, has this series going on called Modern Love, and it's based on essay submissions. So they solicit essays from their readers. And that's where today's Tinder essay is. Uh, this was three days ago, okay. but yeah. Uh, so they solicit essays from their readers, and the readers are writing these essays. And it's about... Um, very, very provocative uh, essays most of the time because it's about, quote unquote, modern love, how love has changed. So these pieces make a lot of interesting arguments about how they think love has changed. And this one specifically is about Tinder. And uh, this is written by a, a college student who's uh, actually a student at Colorado State University. Um, and he describes this experience interacting with a girl on Tinder and uh, describes how they text back and forth uh, for about five days. And then the, the end is pretty interesting. Um, he says, in the end, we had exchanged hundreds of messages for dozens of hours over nearly five straight days. But now that the roads were clear, the, the entire time, um, just to give you background, his truck was, was basically uh, stranded on the side of the road, so he was snowed in. So now that the roads were clear and I was mobile, enabling us to get together in real life, we could be held accountable for our words and affection. That proved to be a burden neither of us could bear. So that's pretty interesting because it just pointed out, and he's pointing out very honestly, how um, Tinder enables people to um, basically use false words, use use words that aren't authentic, uh, and when push comes to shove, they can't actually back them up with real affection. You know, they can't be accountable for the affection they express in mere yeah, words just and pictures. An emotional connection of some sort. Yeah. So that was that was interesting and and sad, I think, to read because um, you know I think people are missing out on a lot if they if they aren't held accountable for their words and affections. Yeah. Or you're just encouraged to put their money where their mouth is. I mean, that's kind of what I like about coffee meets bagel. I think if I were single now, I would be willing to use that because they, they actually incentivize meeting each other. They say, we'll give you a discount if you go out to coffee. I mean, that's cool. <laughs> Sally, we should get coffee meets bagel and we can get incentives to go get coffee together. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, you know, if, in a society that seems to be, or a generation that seems to be more afraid of commitment and relationships, having them more removed to the internet or just to your phone, it makes it easier to, you know, remain skittish or engage without engaging. So it's not, you know, it's not doing anything differently than you could do sort of in real life, so to speak. It just really enhances it. Yeah, definitely easier. But is it better? Yes, that's the question. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that is probably a good note to end our dating app discussion on. So now let's move on to the interview. Let's talk to you, Julia. Okay. For the final segment of Vernacular Podcast, we are sitting down with Julia and hearing all about her life. Uh, Julia is currently serving as chief of staff to a Colorado state senator, uh, but she's not from Colorado. So, Julia, how about you tell us about that? How did you end up in Colorado? Well, you know, everyone, when I meet people here, they ask me where I'm from, and I always have to say, well, since when? <laughs> because I have moved quite around quite a bit. I am originally from Mississippi. Um, and I first left when I went to college in California at Biola University. I hope it's okay if I give a shout out to that. <laughs> <clears throat> and then I ended up 
Um, after that, I ended up doing a fellowship with the John Jay Institute, which was in Colorado Springs. So that was my first sort of exposure to spending a lot of time in Colorado. Um, and then after part of the completion of that was over, I ended up doing internships on the East Coast in D.C., um, where I worked for two or three years, three or four years, I forget now. Um, and then through some really wonderful mutual friends, I got connected with um, this state senator here in Colorado uh, the summer of 2013. Now, so you said you were working in um, D.C. before that. So why did you, uh, you want to make the shift from you know, the federal capital to a state capital? Sure. Well, that's that's a good question. And there was a lot I loved about D.C. and I loved my time there and all the people I met. Um, and I wouldn't be a good American, you know, if I didn't love Capitol Hill and the White House and, and all of these iconic American things. But the longer I spent in D.C., the more I began to realize that where the real work seems to get done is at the state level um, because it's it's not as big as the as state government is not as big as the federal government. Everything is more tangible, more hands-on. You know, I like to say, if you want to go talk to your state senator, you can literally walk into their office and sit there and not leave until they talk to you. And if you tried to do that, you know, for your U.S. senator, 15 different staff members would probably have, you know, tried to kick you out and you'd never get to see them. So one reason that I like was drawn to the state level of politics and government is just the accessibility of it. Um, and since I've been in Colorado, I realized that's, that's, that's proven to be true time and time again. Um, there's a lot more bipartisanship, working across the aisle, um, being with friends from different parties, collaboration on things. Um, and it's, it's so much closer to the people. And I think that's one reason work actually gets done. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask if, if it's been your experience that more has been accomplished since um, you've moved into the state level. Oh, absolutely. I think absolutely. I mean, we, we all can read the news at the state level and what you hear about is partisan gridlock, you know. So I, I we're all familiar with that. But in Colorado, it's, uh, you know, the, the Senate is um, 18 Republicans, 17 Democrats. So it's very, I mean, it's almost evenly divided. And what that means is you, you have to find ways to work together to get legislation passed. And it's easier to get your bills through if you've got a Republican sponsor and a Democrat sponsor. And so there's a lot of incentive to work across the aisle, figure out compromises, say, you know, what can we live with? Um, and again, you're just more likely to even have friends in the other party whom you can sit down with and say, hey, how can we work this out? What can we really do? Um, and again, at the state level, it's easier as well to find more issues that you can agree on that you want to work together on, too. So um, both governments have sessions and then they're in session or out of session. But with the state government, um, state senators and representatives are working far less. Is that right? Yes. The, whereas the U.S. Uh, Congress is in session almost year round, I guess, with the exception of, of August recess, um, every state has a different length of legislative session. So there are some that are as short as 45 days. I think Texas wow. is only in session every other year. Wow. Um, I, I knew there was a reason I always liked Texas. <laughs> um, up to eight or nine months, I think California and Massachusetts have some of the longest sessions. Um, Colorado kind of falls in the middle of where other state governments do. They meet for about four months, 120 days, actually. And that that's 
somewhere around average for how long states will meet. Yeah, it seems like if you have less time to be in session, it would just be that much crazier because you'd be trying to accomplish so much more within that short period of time. What's a typical day when you're in session? You know, that it just all depends on, I suppose, if it's towards the beginning of the session or towards the end of the session. You know, a, a typical day will look like, um, I'll usually attend committee hearings, committee meetings with my senator. I'll be in our office. We had uh, two interns this year, and so a lot of my work was supervising them on their projects and helping them learn about what was going on. Um, I would have the senator that I worked for was really involved in education, and so a lot of my job was meeting with people involved in education and learning from them and getting input on legislation. So I met, you know, on a given day, I could meet with someone from the Colorado, De- Colorado Department of Education or a superintendent from a school district here or someone who does education research, you know, getting, getting input on our bills and what we needed to do. Um, towards the end of the session, when the amount of bills has been passed by the House and Senate, really um, grow, like the pile grows for what the other has, House has to hear. So then it becomes really... Uh, that's when it becomes really crazy because then bills are going back and forth and being heard in committees and being amended and sent back to the other house. And so the last probably month of session is when it's the craziest. So you moved from a nonprofit in DC to working in a Senator's office in Colorado. Do you think you'll, uh, well, do you think you've had your fill of politics at this point or are you going to stick around longer? And if so, are you going to, um, stay in Colorado or will you be going back to your home state or what? At this point, I think that I'll be staying in Colorado. Um, I I love it here. I think there's a lot of really good opportunities on so many levels of the state to see a lot of good work happen. Um, I'm definitely do- not done with politics, and probably won't be until I, you know, introduce my own raw milk legislation. <laughs> but um, no, I right now I have every intention of staying here, and I'll still be doing work for the same senator and. We'll probably be back for next year's legislative session and working on some 2016 campaigns as well. Um, on a different note, we know that you recently traveled outside the U.S. Um, and went to the Middle East. Can you tell us about that trip? That just sounds very fascinating. And can you tell us where you went um, and just what your experience was like? You know, I hate to say that was a life-changing trip because, you know, it's easy to say something was life-changing and, and have it mean Nothing, but um, it really was very impactful to me in a lot of ways. I went to Oman on the Arabian Peninsula to visit some friends of mine who were in language school there. And I went at the end of Ramadan, so I feel like I really got the whole cultural experience when I was there. Um, so I, was, I got to travel to the capital city, and I also got to go to Dubai while I was there as well. And yeah, it was just a, obviously a completely different experience than anything I've ever had being literally on the other side of a world in a completely different culture. Um, but it gave me a, you know, a really good perspective into, I guess, a different way of life, you know, and, and humanized people that prior to that I'd only heard about on the news. Um, but to really say, you know, there are people here who just want a good life for themselves and their family and want to live and they're doing the best that they can and the best that they know how. And that was, I think that was very interesting for me to be a, sort of absorbed into a culture for 10 days and realize, you know, they just, they just want to love their family as well. 
So did you eat during the day or did you uh, do what the Omanis did? You know, I did not, hadn't had that many night dinners since I was in college. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> I was, I was, yeah, it was quite the experience. But because it was during Ramadan, you know, they would fast during the day and then at night is when we would have, like, have dinner. And so that's, that's what I did. It was not unusual to find us up at 11 or 12 o'clock at night eating and not just dinner, you know, it was feast worthy food. So all sorts of sweets and pastries and, you know, fancy foods that they would have. Um, yeah. So definitely a typical day would be, I would sleep until about 1 PM and then get up and, maybe eat a breakfast around three o'clock and then not eat again till eight or nine o'clock at night. And then again at 11 or 12 when we were invited over to someone's home. Did you like baklava? I, I loved it. It was so good, especially when someone would make it and you know, they made it in their kitchen and it was fresh, very sweet, but the authentic stuff is really good. Yeah. I'm not, a, I'm not a huge baklava fan. <laughs> I, I love Middle Eastern food though. So I like some Middle Eastern food. I w when I was in Egypt, uh, I got pretty sick from a lot of the food, so I think, I think it affected me. <laughs> it was also really hot while I was there. Um, it was probably 115 degrees. I was in there in July, I guess it was, about 115 degrees. What in the world possessed you to visit Oman in July? <laughs> I, I know. Uh, you know, no real explanation other than that's when the, the travel time worked out. And I was very interested to go um, at, the end of, at the end of Ramadan just to be able to experience that. Was that your first time to the Middle East? Uh, I had been to Turkey, which I guess is kind of quasi, you know, Middle yeah, East. Yeah, Turkey's interesting. It's caught in an identity crisis and it's trying to figure, Very out, much, figure yeah. out what it wants to be. Is it Europe? Is it the Middle East? Is it going to be a secular democracy or, yeah, it's, I think it's a bridge sort of to both worlds at this point. So yeah. I, you know, but I don't know that I would count Turkey in the same way as the Arabian Peninsula. Certainly way different. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's neat though. All right. So let's back up a little bit to the politics stuff and uh, one final question for you in terms of your, your career trajectory here. Where do you see yourself in 20 years? No, let's, let's make it 10 years, a little easier. Where do you see yourself in 10 years? <laughs> oh, goodness. I definitely hope that I'm still working in politics in Colorado. Um, at some point, I would really like to be working for someone who holds a statewide office here. So whether that looks like being on a governor's staff or working for a secretary of state. Um, that's what I would really like to do. Either working in communications or on policy um, would be something I'd really love. Uh, chief of staff to a governor would be pretty cool. That would be very cool. Yeah, wow. Um, yeah, so so I don't know. But as with politics, so much of this is, un is unpredictable. Or, you know, as we even kind of talked about, would I ever run for office myself? You know, I might. It's just see what, what things look like from year to year. And um, yeah, so I don't know. But there's a lot of opportunity, I think, for work in Colorado. It's an interesting state um, demographics wise. You know, I think what is it? There's as many people under 40 as there are over 40 or something to that effect. So, uh, you know, it's an interesting demographics. I think culturally and politically, there's a little bit of a libertarian bent to it, but it's it's definitely a purple state. And which way is it, you know, going to go in the next 10 years? I don't know. But I think there's a lot of good work to um, a chance to try a lot of things and see what happens. 
Well, this is the actual final question. Mm -hmm. Um, so given your love of food and interest in, in food, if you could, if you could only live with one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh, you know what I'm going to say? Raw fresh. milk. Oh, I course. thought you were going to say fresh dates. <laughs> oh, oh, no, you can't have fresh dates without the camel milk, and I'm just not, still not won over by the camel milk. Oh, so. gosh. <laughs> Raw milk, all right. Raw milk, it's, it's the perfect, uh, you know, makeup of fats, carbs, and protein. It tastes delicious. I will make you live forever. Clearly. <laughs> wow, I'm, I'm, I'm almost convinced. Maybe I should go out and find my farmer down the road. I still like my, I still like my carton from the grocery store. (laughs) Well, thanks so much, Julia, for being with us. And wait, I have one final question. Oh, oh, never mind. All right. So if you then had to choose between eating one food for the rest of your life, that being raw milk or being able to have a ton of different foods for the rest of your life, whatever you wanted, as long as it was nothing organic, what would you choose? That's so hard. I still think I'd say raw milk. Oh, gosh. Get out of here. Get out of here. And on that note. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Am I allowed to make yogurt out of it? Can I use it to make cheese or butter? You can do whatever you want as long as you don't add anything to it. You're you're more than welcome to have all the raw milk you you want. Frozen raw milk? (laughs) Ice cream, maybe? Yes, Well, thanks so much for being with us. This has been great, and it's been great to hear your story and what you hope to accomplish in the future. And, um, and we wish you all the best in doing that. Yeah, definitely. Come back when you're when you're a governor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I will. I'll be on. <laughs> all right. Sounds good. We'll look forward to having you then. All right. Thanks, Thanks so much, Julia. Yep. Bye. show for today we have one more thing that we need to do and that is to check our inbox to find Ah, out yes if we have any mail from our fans all right let's check the inbox our non-fans i guess but yes or or that let's check our inbox oh one new email let's see who this is from thank you our first piece of real fan mail all right this email reads hi i listened to your show with danny the medical student and he's right that peanut butter and jelly sandwiches are a great breakfast food Mm. Uh, editorial note here. This is in reference to episode one, the one where we talked to a medical student. When Danny told us that he at 5 a.m. when he's going into medical school, he often has a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for breakfast. That's all he has time for. I said that sounded gross, and this, I said it sounded good. This reader is encouraging me otherwise. So, or listener, not reader. I mean, <laughs> they probably read too, but <laughs> they listen to us. So uh, he's right that peanut butter and jelly sandwiches are a great breakfast food with a few tweaks. The writer continues, Zach, if you still need to be convinced, try a peanut butter and jelly on a toasted English muffin. Hmm. The peanut butter will melt into all the nooks and crannies, and it's like a party in your mouth at 5 a.m. Wow. Happy breakfasting, Muriel. Wow. Well, we'll have to try that. I mean, that does sound better to me than just slabbing some peanut butter and jelly on some store-bought bread and stuffing that in your mouth at 5 a.m. Yeah, no melted peanut butter. If there's melted peanut butter, I'm there. All right, well, let's try it out. So... Um, yeah, we'll give that a shot and let you know how that turns out. Yeah, so, thanks so much, Muriel. toasted English muffins with peanut butter and jelly. Thank you very much, Muriel. We'll have yeah. to give that a shot. Well, I think that about wraps it up for us at Vernacular Podcast. Don't forget to reach out to us at Zach and Sally at VernacularPodcast.com. Uh, let us know your feedback on the show. Uh, let us know if you have any questions or comments on anything you've heard. You can also join our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter at VernacularPod. At VernacularPod. 
for Vernacular Podcast. I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a good week. Thank you.